0: Today on Against the Grain, the fortunes of DDT, the synthetic pesticide which infamously devastated bird populations in the United States, rose and fell during the 20th century and rose again in the 21st, driven by a campaign by Big Tobacco to sow uncertainty about what can be known. Historian of Medicine Elena Konis. Discusses the trajectory and afterlife of DDT, used to cast doubt on scientific evidence and undermine the regulation of private corporations and markets. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. The conventional account of the rise and fall of the pesticide DDT goes like this. It was first deployed in World War II and was widely used in the United States after the war. In 1962, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, documented the damage it was causing wildlife. And a decade later... was banned. But according to Elena Konis, this story misses as much as it captures, including about the enormous influence that private corporations have on how we see science. She retells the story of the pesticide in her book How to Sell a Poison, The Rise, Fall, and Toxic Return of DDT, published by Bold Type Books. Konis teaches in the Graduate Program in Public Health and Journalism at UC Berkeley. So, let me start with this question, Elena. What makes DDT so toxic to humans and other living things?
1: That's a good question. So, there are a couple of qualities about this chemical that make it really toxic. Um, and I'll highlight two of them. One is that it accumulates in fat. And so, if you take DDT into your body, it'll find its way to your fat tissue and it'll hang out there. Um, and that means a couple of things. That means that It will build up there, collect there over time. So if you take in a lot of small doses, eventually you've got the equivalent of a big dose in your body. And in um, ecosystems, it means that DDT levels also accumulate as you go up the food chain. So organisms that are higher on the food chain are consuming all the DDT in the bodies of the organisms below them. And the effect is that it's magnified in their bodies. The other key um, feature of its toxicity that I'd point out is that it mimics the hormone estrogen, and it has other hormonal effects that earn it the name an endocrine disruptor. And these effects were noted really, really early on, really not thought of as important for decades and decades, and it wasn't until the late 90s that um, scientists start to look at these, these effects again and realize that this was one of a whole class of endocrine disruptors. DDT is not a particularly strong one, um, but it can act like a hormone inside the body, which can be confusing for a, a whole bunch of physiological processes.
0: Right. So what are the consequences then of endocrine disruptors? Why is that a concern?
1: That's a really good question too. So you can imagine then that if you um, are reliant on hormones to tell your body what to do and when, when to go through key stages of development um, and when to put certain aspects of development on pause, if you've got chemicals that are stopping those hormones from doing their job, or amplifying the job that those hormones are doing, that's what throws things off. So, you know, some effects of endocrine disruption have been um, developmental problems noted, for instance, in newborns. Um, others have been linked to different forms of cancer. In animals, and in particularly in birds, in the case of DDT, what scientists noticed back in the 60s, I would say, is that through this effect ddt was actually making it difficult for birds to store calcium in the way that they needed to in order to to lay eggs with strong shells and so they started laying eggs with thin shells and those eggs were not very viable as you can imagine and so ddt among other chemicals was linked to the decline a pretty significant decline especially um, in uh, a number of different bird populations.
0: How does the timing of one's exposure to DDT affect the magnitude of the problems it might cause?
1: So that's something that uh, a handful of studies have looked at, and I'll highlight one just briefly. And this one is one that was done looking at the link between DDT and breast cancer. And I think in order to answer this question, I kind of want to back up and give a little bit more context about why we, re- we were even looking at this particular relationship um, in a scientific way to begin with. And this has to do with the, the rise of the breast cancer movement at the tail end of the 1980s and early 1990s when women many of whom had been active in second wave feminism and the women's rights movement of the 60s and 70s um, started to in some cases be diagnosed with breast cancer and started to push back against the ways that breast cancer had historically been treated medically but especially culturally in the u.s women were often in you know, the 70s and earlier, blamed for their own breast cancer, held responsible for, you know, not living right and not living in a way that protected their bodies from disease. It was a shameful disease, and so people didn't talk about it, and, you know, women often who were diagnosed ended up going through treatment and recovery really in an isolated, lonely way. In the tail end of the 80s, a number of women started to push back against that, and in particular, started to say we've been blamed for this disease for so long but what if there are other things that have caused it and not surprisingly in the wake of the environmental movement one of the things that came to their attention was chemicals in the environment so this movement the breast cancer movement just exploded in the 1990s it got a ton of attention and A number of the women lobbied Congress in particular and leaders like the heads of the National Cancer Institute and others to start looking at and specifically start funding research into the links between breast cancer and chemicals in the environment. Uh, some scientists were already looking at the connections between those two things, and some, there were some early studies that had come out looking at the relationship between um, different aspects of breast health and DDT and other similar chemical exposures in the 1980s. But in the 1990s, Specifically in 1993, a key study came out that suggested that there did seem to be a link that women who were exposed or had higher levels of DDT in their body, I should say, had a higher risk of breast cancer. To kind of take this story forward, epidemiologists over the next several decades kind of produced conflicting evidence. One study would show a relationship between DDT and breast cancer, the other one would not. And then, in the 2000s, um, a study came out by a researcher actually here in Berkeley who looked at the relationship between DDT and breast cancer by using what I kind of think of as archival blood samples. She had access to blood that had been collected from women Um, back in the forties, fifties, and sixties. And so she decided to see what the relationship was between their DDT levels when they were young and their risk of breast cancer later in life. And she found a really strong association. If a woman was exposed to DDT when she was in her early teenage years, her adolescent years, she had a four to five-year-old increased risk of breast cancer later in life. And it suggested, of course, that during this key phase of development of the breast, DDT likely acting as a hormone mimic um, was affecting that development in ways that put those girls at risk of breast cancer when they became adults decades down the line. So that's just one example of, of how it matters. Um, and it's also an example of how the history of this kind of matters too. Indeed, and and your book traces the complex history
0: of DDT, and we'll talk about a lot of that history, but I wonder if you could take us back to the origins of DDT, how was it developed?
1: Yeah, that's a great place to start. So DDT was first synthesized by a chemist back in the 1870s. Um, this is a chemist in Austria, just working on his um, graduate work. He synthesized it, he noted it down, shelved the formula, and that was pretty much it for another half a century or more. In the 1930s, a, a Swiss chemist was looking through old formulas, known, known chemicals and little studied chemicals to try to find something That would be a new and improved insect killer, and the reason why this was a particularly interesting question in the 1930s was that we were facing really significant crop pests here in the US, this scientist was in Europe there too, and our best and most widely used insect killers or insecticides at the time were really, really toxic. <laughs> like they were made of things like lead and arsenic, things that we would never even imagine probably putting on our crops today. Um, but they were commonly used and the whole thinking was you use them, you wash them off and that should make the, the, the crops, the fruits, the vegetables safe to eat. But there were a number of high-profile poisonings and um, spates of illnesses in the 1910s and 1920s from people who would encounter too high residues of these lead and arsenic-based pesticides on on their foods and their lunch and their dinner, you name it. So in the 1930s, this scientist at uh, this, the, the firm was, called Geige, and it was um, based in Basel, Switzerland, and he noted that this chemical that had been formulated back in the 1870s seemed really good at killing a few key pests, a particular kind of moth, a particular kind of worm, and it also seemed to be not very toxic. And again, it's important to know that his comparison was it wasn't as toxic as lead or arsenic-based pesticides. Um, by the time he made this discovery, World War II had begun. And so the firm, Geige, decided to share the formula for this pesticide, and but share it you know, in a pretty democratic way. So shared it with the Americans, shared it with the British, shared it with the Nazis, and they all be- began their individual experiments on the chemical. The Nazis decided it was too much of an unknown quantity. They weren't sure how it was toxic. They could tell it was toxic to bugs, but weren't sure what it did to people, and so they decided to not pursue it any further. The British studied it a bit, but the U.S. government really studied it, and we had uh, especially once we entered the Second World War, a massive infusion of federal support for scientific research. And so the representative for Geige in the US sent a couple of samples of this this chemical DDT to the USDA, which sent it down to one of its labs in Orlando. This was a lab devoted to entomology, the study of bugs, and in particular, what could kill them or control them. And the entomologists in Orlando were just quickly stunned by DDT. They were looking for a better bug killer, something that wasn't as toxic as many of the things we had used before. They were also looking for something that was considered the kind of holy grail of bug killers, something that killed bugs whether they touched it or ate it, and DDT seemed to do that. And so they just started testing it on everything. They sprayed it on stables and theaters and mess halls and army barracks. And they saw that it killed flies and mosquitoes and cockroaches and bedbugs. And one of them put some DDT into a, a kind of sleeve that he pulled on his arm and then he filled the sleeve with lice. And the next morning, all the lice were dead. And without putting any more DDT in the sleeve, he just put more lice in.
0: What an experiment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, really. (laughs) But then the next morning, the lice were dead. Long story short, six weeks later, the sleeve was still killing lice. He had not added any more DDT. But every time, and yes, this guy was putting lice in his sleeve for six weeks. (laughs) Every time he added lice, they still died. And this was when the head of that lab said to himself, "Okay, we have something huge here. You don't even have to reapply it. This is how DDT came to be known for one of its key qualities that is also related to why it's so toxic, and that is its persistence. It's really hardy. Not only does it build up in our fat, but it just sticks around in the environment for a really long time, which initially was seen as a benefit, but over time, this was seen as a real liability.
0: I'm speaking with historian of medicine, Elena Konis. We're discussing her book, How to Sell a Poison, The Rise, Fall, and Toxic Return of DDT. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you were describing how scientists, when they started to see the potential of DDT, became very excited. At what point did evidence start to accumulate that DDT
1: was poisonous? Well, almost immediately. The same scientists who were studying this chemical in Orlando, um, they started sharing it with scientists at the agency that we now know of as the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And both teams of scientists started using DDT in in outdoor areas. And they noted that it didn't just kill bugs that were quote unquote undesirable, it also killed beneficial bugs. And they noticed that it started, it seemed to have an effect on fish, birds, and um, amphibians. And they noted this and said, you know, this seems a little troubling, but these populations of, you know, frogs, bees, butterflies, etc. seemed to bounce back. So that we shouldn't need to worry about that too much. At the same time that USDA and CDC scientists were studying DDT, scientists up at the FDA were studying it too, and they actually had a really different perspective on it. One of the first things that they noted was that DDT not only did it accumulate in fat, but it concentrated in in milk, in the milk of animals. They fed it to dogs and they noticed that um, female dogs had DDT in their milk and they passed that on to their pups. And so they wrote up a report and they shared it with the U.S. Army and they said, you know, "We, we need a lot more time to study this chemical because this seems like a really troubling characteristic. We don't know what it means. We recommend a period of 37 weeks of study before we go any further with this. And the U.S. Army had a bunch of reports from the CDC, from the USDA, and they took this report from the FDA and they tacked it on to the very, very back (laughs) of their kind of briefer on DDT and said, all right, seems like a great chemical. The FDA wants more time to study it. Why don't we just go ahead and use it while they continue to study it? So the FDA did, and they were not studying it in people, but in the lab animals that they studied it in, they they had enough evidence, they believed, that suggested that it should be used with a lot more caution. As DDT started to be used during the war, there were a handful of instances of so-called acute poisonings, people getting such huge doses that it ended up making them sick or, in a few cases, killed them. Um, To give you an example of how big a dose it would take to make somebody sick, there was a group of war prisoners on the Pacific Islands who um, had access to a big bag of what they thought was flour. And so they used this flour to make themselves, you know, the records say bread, but it was probably something more like a, a pancake. They were, you know, living off of very little means. It wasn't flour. It was DDT. And so they ate these essentially DDT pancakes, and it did not kill them. It made them extraordinarily lethargic. Some were paralyzed in their arms and legs, they recovered from that paralysis. Um, Others had different neurological effects, but it took a really enormous dose of DDT to be fatal for humans. And that was one of the reasons why we were so slow in understanding its toxicity.
0: How important was World War II and the threat of malaria and other bug-borne diseases to DDT being embraced so wholeheartedly?
1: This is hugely important. So, one of the reasons why the scientists at the USDA lab in Orlando were so intent on finding a new insecticide was because insects had been such a problem for U.S. troops in earlier wars. Uh, Mosquitoes transmit malaria, um, lice transmit typhus, and Bed bugs are notoriously uncomfortable, and this is just a handful of the diseases that have been spread among troops in other wartime settings. So, when it seemed that DDT could be used to kill, you know, bed bugs, lice, cockroaches in the kitchen, but especially mosquitoes, the army was incredibly enthusiastic. And one of the things that it did was equip some of its um, fighter planes, it's bombers, with spray tanks and in the Pacific especially, flew these bombers over entire islands, coating the entire island, or in some cases like Okinawa, the entire city um, with DDT, and the idea was that they would do that before the ground troops went in, so the ground troops were entirely safe and not at all at risk of malaria. Um, On the other side of the world, in the Mediterranean we use DDT in a really different way, using it in a dust form, not a spray form. And the Allied troops in Italy ended up dusting more than a million war refugees with the dust form of DDT and found that it protected them from diseases spread by lice and body lice. So, here, in very different parts of the world, DDT was proving itself in the context of the war um, as a way of stopping what was long one of the most complicating problems of war, which was the spread of disease. So, it got incredible press during the war, um, and that meant that when it was released for sale to the public, It almost, I'll say almost, but it almost didn't have to be advertised because people had heard so many positive things about it during the war itself.
0: This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'm speaking with Elena Konis about her book, How to Sell a Poison, The Rise, Fall, and Toxic Return of DDT. That's published by Public Affairs, and you can find a link to it on our website, againstthegrain.org. She teaches in the graduate program in public health and journalism at UC Berkeley and is also the author of Vaccine Nation. Elena, can you describe what regulatory oversight existed for chemicals or didn't exist in the United States at the time that DDT was widely adopted and in the decades uh,
1: following that? Sure. So. There's a really complicated answer to this question, so I'm gonna give you a kind of simplified one. And one of the key things to know is that when DDT and the whole new class of synthetic pesticides that accompanied it came on the US market after the war, um, they, they entered a regulatory environment in which pesticides pretty much just had to contain what it said on the label. (laughs) And the laws essentially said they had to be labeled accurately. Um, They could be toxic. Everybody knew that, they didn't even use the pesticide, the word pesticides at the time, they used the word insecticides or they used the word poison. Um, They knew that things that killed insects were poisons and poisons were accepted as a, a kind of necessary part of life and this goes back of course to the fact that so many insect killers were made of chemicals based on lead and arsenic um, in the early 19, early 20th century and before that so these chemicals were known to be poisons and so when they first came on the market the usda had some labeling guidelines and then every state had to come up with its own regulations for how these chemicals could be marketed and sold. Um, because they were quote-unquote poisons, a lot of the state agencies responsible for the oversight of their sales said things like, okay, well they're poisons, so like any other poison, Uh, They should bear the skull and crossbones on their label. They should say, caution, poison, um, avoid contact, keep away from children, or they should only be sold by pharmacists um, or some other type of, of specialized retailer. And DDT was one of a number of these new chemicals that prompted people to rethink exactly what a poison was. Now, I should say that among the new synthetic pesticides that came out after the war, some of them, like DDT, seemed to be not so toxic. In other words, it took an enormous dose before you experienced any effects of poisoning. Some of them were far more toxic than anything we had ever seen before. They emerged from um, the research on nerve poisons and chemical weapons during the war, and one of these, one of the worst examples I can give you is a chemical called TEP, which was so toxic that a drop of it on the skin of an adult could cause them to go into convulsions and in some cases death often. Um, And this was an over the market pesticide that again was sold in the same way as DDT. So it was quite clear after a while that we needed new regulations for how these chemicals were Labeled, how they were sold, but also how they were tested for safety and how they were used in the food supply. And this is a whole other area of regulation that the FDA was pr- primarily responsible for versus the labeling and marketing side, which USDA was primarily responsible for. To kind of take us forward in time a bit, Um, This led in the 1950s to high-level congressional hearings on the amount and type of chemicals in the food supply. These were held in the early 1950s and they focused not just on pesticides because there were so many other new chemicals introduced in food manufacture during the war because of wartime shortages, things like synthetic fats and oils, um, stabilizers and fresheners added to everything from like baked goods and bread to um, I don't know you name it even like processed meats and, and the like. So these congressional hearings in the 1950s go on for they span three different calendar years they're led by a congressman from New York, James Delaney, and in the end, they they leave really the country with this fear about all the chemicals in the food supply. They galvanize chemical manufacturers who begin (laughs) undertaking a kind of PR campaign to defend themselves from all this bad press, and they lead to, over the course of the later 1950s, a whole bunch of legislative proposals to try to deal with the problem of all of these new chemical ingredients in the food supply, synthetic chemicals. And one outcome is an amendment passed to the Food and Drug Act in 1957 called the Delaney Amendment after Congressman Delaney. And what his amendment did was focus on one key feared effect of all these chemicals, and that was cancer. Um, Of all of the proposals introduced over the course of several years, there were a few others that passed, but none did as much as the Delaney Clause, which said, if any chemical is found to cause cancer in people or animals, It cannot be used in the production of food, it cannot be present in um, foods that are on the market. The tolerance for those kinds of chemicals, cancer-causing chemicals, is zero. And the Delaney amendment really shook chemical manufacturers. It gave, however, the public a sense that okay at the very least chemicals that cause cancer won't be in the foods that we're eating they could still be used i should emphasize as long as they weren't present in the final food product that was in the market
0: and i'll ask you more about the ways that the companies who produce these chemicals push back but i wanted to ask you about how oppositions mounted against. Uh, DDT in the context which you're mentioning of concerns of contamination of food. The opposition, of course, most famously was expressed in the book by Rachel Carson published in 1962, Silent Spring. But I wonder if you could tell us sort of the backstory that led to mounting opposition and the role often of women in fact, in opposing DDT?
1: Sure. So all of these things are connected. So during the war, when scientists were studying DDT, some of the entomologists were incredibly enthusiastic. Some were saying, hold on, this kills beneficial bugs, in particular bees. And the effects on bees were noted early on and caused a lot of concern. When DDT came on the consumer market after the war, Again, there were loads of people who received it warmly and especially because it was thought of as a a polio preventive, but also it was used far and wide on farms and in agriculture. And in a handful of places, there were people who said, wait a second, this chemical is also killing, like, my bees on my small farm, or it is harming my baby chicks and it's causing all different kinds of problems. Let's stop using it." In those hearings that I mentioned a few minutes ago in the early 1950s, there were a number of scientists and physicians who testified about the dangers of DDT. They testified before Congress that it was building up in the fat of their patients. Um, They testified that it was killing off bees and bees were you know, known as key pollinators. And some said, without bees, we have no agriculture. So we're not saving anything if we're not protecting our bees. Rachel Carson, when she began her research for Silent Spring, ended up looking at those testimonies, reading those testimonies. Um, And one of the reasons why she did so was that her attention was drawn to a lawsuit that had been filed in 1957 by a pair of women living on Long Island on a two-acre plot that they had bought in order to grow their own food and to grow it organically. And their town was planning a a town-wide DDT spray campaign, and they asked not to be sprayed. And they were told they didn't have the right not to be sprayed, that their property was going to be sprayed against their will so they took it to court um they did not win in the end but what happened was their court case got a little bit of press it got rachel carson's attention um, and she began a correspondence and really a, a lifelong friendship with these two women through which she learned about the physicians and scientists who had been talking about DDT's harms for years by then. What she did was she packaged it into a really compelling narrative that when it was published in 1962, resonated with people who were aware of those congressional hearings, who were already concerned about the numbers and amounts and types of chemicals in the food supply, pesticides among them. Um, And it resonated with other groups that were also kind of pushing back against chemicals. Small farmers who back in the 1940s had attempted to, to stop the use of DDT. Um, farm laborers in California's Central Valley who also had tried in their early union organizing to bring attention to pesticides um, and how much illness they were causing among laborers in the fields. So it really resonated with or Silent Spring really resonated with so many things that were already happening in the country. And I think that's one of the big reasons that it was so successful. It spoke to something that we had been kind of talking about for a long time, and it synthesized it in a new way where all of the pieces came together and were therefore impossible to ignore.
0: You mentioned Mexican farm workers in California's Central Valley with the United Farm Workers. And although DDT affected uh, very large swaths of the US population, given its very widespread use, one thread that runs through your book, How to Sell a Poison, is that it particularly affected uh, some people, especially poor people, people of color. Can you tell us about that dimension of the story of DDT?
1: DDT was one of, again, thousands of chemicals that were newly introduced in the post-war period um, and one of probably a few dozen pesticides that were used regularly in agriculture. And in California at the time, agriculture was booming and the massive agricultural output of the Central Valley was so heavily reliant early on on something called the Braceros Program, um, which brought guest workers from Mexico to work on farms in the U.S. um, and was formally ended in the 1960s, um, but migrant farm labor continued even after its formal end. And a number of these farm workers had a couple of experiences that were incredibly common. One, early on especially, was being dusted and fumigated as they crossed the border, um, often with DDT, among other chemicals, to prevent them from bringing in um, insects or quote-unquote diseases as as they crossed into the U.S. The other common experience that so many of them had once working here was working in fields that were either recently sprayed and not yet safe to enter, but they had been told that they were safe to enter, or working in fields while the fields were being sprayed, even though this was expressly against um, state regulation at the time. And so as farm farmworkers decide- began to organize in the early to mid 1960s, one of the issues that came up not so much right in the beginning, but soon thereafter was how they could access better protections from these exposures to pesticides. Everybody knew that they were toxic and year in and year out there would be these massive poisonings. Um, One of them that the California Department of Health investigated I think was in the summer of 62 or 63 right after or during the attention that Silent Spring was getting and it was a case of poisoning not from DDT but from another one of these commonly used pesticides Parathion and it was a poisoning among peach pickers who had been told that it was completely safe that the the trees had been sprayed an adequate number of days or weeks before but what nobody thought about was that these laborers were going from farm to farm, day after day, hours and hours on end each day, and so even though the first farm was quote-unquote safe, by getting up the next morning and going to the next farm and working 12 hours there, they ended up getting toxic doses of parathion in their system, and hundreds of them ended up being sick and hospitalized. And so Incidents like these were widely known and this became over time one of the key things that once the United Farm Workers was officially formed they started to demand in their negotiations with growers, in particular grape growers. Interestingly, there was a a split among the United Farm Workers and some of their supporters over which pesticides to ask for protection from and they knew that, in most cases, the acute poisonings, the things that cause people these that cause these mass poisonings, were things like parathion that made people sick immediately. But they also knew that the public didn't know about parathion, but the public knew about DDT. And so they debated among themselves, but ultimately decided, to make a big public issue of the use of DDT and to demand a curb on what they call the hard pesticides, the pesticides that stuck around in fields and on crops long after they were sprayed. And they got one of the nation's first bans on hard pesticides um, in one of their earliest contracts with, with a grape grower here in California. So it's... It's a complicated story because it sounds like a success on one hand, but on the other hand, they made a conscious decision to go for and focus on the pesticide that was most well-known rather than on those pesticides that were causing the most immediate illness to their members.
0: I'm speaking with historian of medicine Elena Konis about her book, How to Sell a Poison. She teaches history at UC Berkeley. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifico Radio. So the conventional wisdom about the rise and fall of DDT is that Rachel Carson published Silent Spring. People found out that DDT was actually quite dangerous. It led to its banning, and it's a story of the triumph of knowledge leading to progress ultimately and I wanted to ask you about that story because in fact you're you're questioning it in your book and one part of the story that tends to be omitted is the kind of resistance to the restraints on DDT that came from quarters that might be unexpected to some. And that's tobacco. I wonder if you could tell us about the connection between tobacco and DDT.
1: So this is related to what I think of as DDT's three acts. So act one, DDT comes on on the scene in the 1940s, it's enormously popular, it's a war hero and it's received as much. Act two, 1972, 10 years after Silent Spring, DDT is banned. This follows a decade of congressional hearings, presidential investigations, state investigations, You know the um, gradual turn against DDT from groups like the United Farm Workers and others, and real big pushes on the part of the new environmental movement to get DDT's use curbed at the state level. Um, and In the late 1960s and early 1970s, a number of environmental groups, old and new, including the Sierra Club, the Audubon Society, um, one of the newer ones is the Environmental Defense Fund, they start filing lawsuits at the state level, petitions at the federal level, and ultimately one of these petitions to the USDA leads to federal hearings. held not by the usda but by the newly formed epa and those hearings lead to a ban on ddt in 1972 and the environmentalists counted as a victory Um, act two ddt is banned and becomes you know like public enemy number one but what i found in studying this history was that there were other players behind the scene Um, and notably as you mentioned the tobacco industry which by the time ddt was banned had spent several years trying to get tobacco growers to stop using DDT and had even asked the USDA to ask growers to stop using DDT. And the reason was Europe was a little bit ahead of us in putting regulatory limits on DDT. And one of the limits that European nations had started to pass in the late 1960s was limits on how much DDT was allowed on um, crops, including tobacco. And so the tobacco industry at the end of the 1960s saw that about a third of its market, its global market was gonna be compromised unless US farmers stopped using DDT. And they also realized that it wasn't just the tobacco farmers because of drift pesticides moving from one place to another, as they're sprayed, and because of its persistence, the fact that when you apply DDT, it sticks around on plants and in the soil, Um, for years, we thought at the time, it turned out to be decades, and in some cases, as much as a century, Um, DDT was a real problem for the industry. So really, long story short, environmentalists claimed the DDT ban as a victory, and they had no idea that tobacco was operating behind the scenes. They also didn't know that the chemical industry was actually pretty content to see DDT go. They didn't love the idea that chemicals could be banned, but in the short term, DDT was a convenient fall guy. We were discovering toxic effects of so many of the new synthetic post-war chemicals, um, and DDT was one that you know by the late 1960s, It wasn't making anybody any money because it was so cheap to produce, so cheap to sell. There were so many manufacturers and a number of chemical companies simply wanted it out of the way so they could sell more expensive patented formulas instead.
0: So let me end by asking you then about the way that big tobacco drew on on think tanks, on nonprofits, on journalists to sow doubt around science itself in many ways, and, and how you see the legacy of that in our period today when there's been a great deal of skepticism with COVID toward what are supposed to be science-based recommendations.
1: Sure. So this is one of the reasons why I thought it was even worth telling a story about DDT, a chemical that's been banned for half a century at this point. There is a third act to DDT's story. We banned it in 1972, and then in the year 2000, all of a sudden, people started to say it was time to bring DDT back. There were op-eds, there were journalists um, saying on the evening news and elsewhere, like, we need this chemical, we need to bring it back. They didn't say that we needed it back in the US. What they said was that we needed it because the US's ban meant other countries weren't using it, in particular countries that were still facing malaria, and that without DDT, they had no way of protecting themselves from this disease. And in particular, people were pointing to the skyrocketing rates of malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. So this Bring Back DDT movement happens around the year 2000, and it's completely perplexing. There's a few things going on at the time. One of them is actually a global um, convention called the Stockholm Convention, which brought together over 100 countries to ban a list of chemicals known as the persistent organic pollutants, chemicals that stick around and pollute the environment for a long time. DDT was on their list of 12 POPs, as they were called. Um, And some of the delegates to the meeting received a letter circulated worldwide among scientists saying we need this chemical in places where malaria threatens. Well, you would think that this Bring Back DDT campaign was just, you know, brought forward by a bunch of scientists who were worried about malaria. As it turned out, there was more to the story. And tobacco, again, was operating behind the scenes, doing almost the exact opposite of what it had done in the late 60s and early 70s this time, they financed a media campaign, a communications campaign, to spread the word that DDT never should have been banned in the first place, because its ban was putting so many millions of people at risk worldwide to malaria. And the reason why they wanted to spread that message was twofold, one, very simply, was to focus attention on malaria as a major health problem instead of the health problems associated with tobacco smoke. At the time, there were two global treaties that were um, about to regulate tobacco differently, and they were looking for ways to push back against it. Another reason why they wanted to promote this story was because they wanted the public to become skeptical about Western-led health programs, campaigns, and conventions. They wanted a story that put the West in a bad light and said, look how self-serving the West is when you put it in charge of global health. Um, And the last reason was summed up by one of the architects of this campaign, the Bring Back TDT campaign. And he said, look, this is a great way to pit the public health people against the environmental people We can divide liberals against themselves and then conquer them and just erode support for their pro-regulatory approach generally. This was a way of just defending free markets. So here, again, act three, you've got tobacco operating behind the scenes. They never really wanted to bring DDT back. They just wanted to spread a story that would uphold free market principles and undermine the cause of further regulation. So the reason why this matters to today is that what we see happening is tobacco doing what we've long known it was doing, sowing doubt. And not just tobacco, but its, it's allies in this larger project. What they did was just, they threw all of what we knew about the science of why DDT was banned into question. And they said things like, it didn't lead to declines in bird populations. It was, quote unquote, never formally linked to cancer. And therefore, you can't trust that science. All you can do is trust that it does protect people against malaria. Well, that last part is true. The first part, two parts weren't. But when you hear stories and when you hear messaging that throws established scientific findings into doubt over and over and over again, it just lets that doubt spread, and it also gives it ammunition. And it was so interesting to me as I got to the very end of the research for my book that among the COVID deniers and anti-maskers and the COVID vaccine skeptics, I found people citing the story of DDT as reasons for, as justification, for their present doubts. So, these things do have an effect. Doubt-mongering works, and it works at our peril, sadly. It probably absolutely protects markets. In fact, I would say that it has. Um, But it does so at risk to ourselves.
0: Elena, thanks so much for coming back on the program.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Elena Konis is the author of How to Sell a Poison, The Rise, Fall, and Toxic Return of DDT. You can find a link to that book at our website, againstthegrain.org. She's a historian of medicine, and she teaches at UC Berkeley. You've been listening to Against the Grain. My name is Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again. Next time, Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lily and CS Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, or follow us on Twitter at RadioAGainst.